Ani, hello, Candice. Hi. Hi, thank you for meeting with me this evening. No problem. I'm excited to be talking with you. Awesome. I'll just give you a short introduction. Candace Paul has lived in northern Saskatchewan for more than three decades with her husband, Marius Paul. She spent many years living and learning the traditional northern culture, which she is passing on to the next generations, including helping build two log homes. In 1987, Candace graduated from the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology with an honours in architectural design. Uh, she led to supervising construction a large hospital addition and later chaired the housing committee at English River First Nation where she and her family live. Candace also facilitated Aboriginal Head Start programs at English River First Nation, trained facilitators in the nine bands of the Meadow Lake Tribal Council. Um, she helped um, with, her, with her husband. They started a Reclaiming Our Youth Homefront School. She recently um, took on the role of emergency management team command for English River First Nation um, La Planche regarding emergencies like the pandemic and flooding and forest fires. And um, when her community became a target of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization for a um, proposed um, deep geological repository for high-level nuclear waste, um, she became the outreach coordinator for the Committee for Future Generations, which has been educating on nuclear waste in the area for 10 years. She's also served four terms as board member with Interchurch Uranium Committee Education Cooperative, and she was also on the steering committee of the Western Mining Action Network for two years, where she advocated successfully for increased representation for Indigenous participants. So, wow, a lifetime of work, Candice. You have you have worn a lot of different hats. Thank you for all the work you've been doing. Thank you. Mm. I wouldn't, wow. Not, it hasn't been a dull life, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us where you live first, just kind of situate us um, geographically, like where are you on the map and what is the, what is the land like and what, it, what are the, the people like where you live? Okay, well, I live in English River First Nation, La Planche. Um, we have, we're a two community Dene band mm -hmm. and uh, our community is the smaller of the two. We, uh, but it is also one of the sites of a former residential school, the Beauval Indian Education or Beauval Indian mm -hmm. Residential School. Yeah. And um, we are located in the Boreal Forest, uh, just on the edge of the shield, 150 kilometers north of Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. So we're located in northwestern Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. and, but uh, it's not a fly-in community, right? You can get to no, it from the highway? We have highway all the way to our community. Our our bigger part of our reserve is a grid highway, okay. but we have okay. pavement all the way to ours. Yeah, I was looking at it on the um, on Google Maps on the terrain, and it just looks like there's there's thousands of small finger lakes, eh? Everywhere. We are like a sponge in this region. <laughs> is it muskeg or is it rocky or a mix? It's a mix. We're not as rocky as we, you know, we get a little farther north, like even 60 kilometers north and you hit a lot more rock. And it's Dene First Nation traditional territory? Yes. Um, oh. 
we are one of the more southern um, bands of Dene and Saskatchewan. We're probably the farthest south. Oh, okay. Does that extend right up to kind of the Arctic? I'm not. I'm not very familiar with Dene First Nation. Dene, yeah, they there's Dene in Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, Manitoba, Northwest Territories, Yukon. Wow. So, um, part of Nunavut, even I think. Wow! Wow! I'm gonna have to do my homework. This is a massive nation. It actually even extends down to the, the Navajo Nation is is Dene as well. Um, oh. They migrated uh, from the north to the south quite a very long, long time ago. There, you moved there about three decades ago, uh, or maybe longer ago. And um, when did you start to kind of get tuned into what was going on with the uranium mining in the in the territory? Well, I always knew they were doing it, but I didn't really uh, have a lot to do with it. My husband had. Um, he and his brother were involved with people who were trying to educate people on when they were trying to open more mines. Um, the mines in Saskatchewan were open during the early cold war and mm -hmm. from the 1950s on. And when they decided to open further mines, there was some hearings and some, the government was pushing for it and nobody was really talking about the impacts. So uh, he and his brother, particularly his brother, was ran a newspaper newsletter in the north, and he was doing what he could to educate people. So Marius was involved in learning about it and helping educate people as well. So he'd so been involved since the, since the late 70s. So but, what are some of the effects of uranium mining? Like, what does it do to the environment? Well, the trouble with uranium mining is the radioactive materials are kind of invisible. Mm. So, and with the processes they use, like in the early mines, they were open pit mines. Oh. And every time they exploded, you know, blew up a part of the, the pit, to extract some more rock within 48 hours, they could detect a rise in radiation levels as far away as Winnipeg and 72 hours later at Lake Superior. Whoa. So, yeah. So what does that do to nearby places? Right. So that radioactive dust has been floating around in our air for, you know, the last 60, 70 years since 1950 previous mines were the first mines were never cleaned up they were just abandoned and saskatchewan is still in the process of trying to clean up the worst ones the gunner mine el dorado and uh it's never going to be cleaned up properly the contamination was allowed to, to flow into lake athabasca which is the biggest lake in saskatchewan and is it adequate? No. Fish can still, fish are contaminated. There are warnings. People are warned not to eat too much of the fish, which is kind of ludicrous because once it's in your system, it's in your system. Right. 
So, uh, you know, the people that live along that lake have been suffering quite extensively already. What kind of, um, what do you mean by suffering? Do, do people have cancer or? There's a lot of, there's a lot of cancer in, in the, there's all kinds of cancers. The one thing that uh, the uranium mining companies admit is that radon gas is emitted. Yes, every time you dig a pit, you're going to release radon gas. And it does affect lung cancer. It, it does cause lung cancer. And they admit that. But they don't admit to any other cancers in, in Canada. Yeah. In places like the United States, there's over 40 different illnesses, including several kinds of cancers that are attributed to exposure to radiation. So primarily, um, you know, the Dene people lived in this land for forever. And the mining has kind of taken over the traditional lifestyle because it's mm. really disrupted, uh, you know, the, the uh, caribou herds with all of the exploration and mines all over the places and all of the traffic. Um, so it's more difficult for people to get the foods that they, they were used to eating. And they were very dependent on fish as well. And now with the fish contaminated, um, you know, they're really dependent on buying foods from expensive imported foods, trucked in and flown in, in some of those farther north communities or flying communities, except in winter when they have a winter road. Yeah. Um, they, they have to depend on really expensive imported foods. What is the main company operating at these, at these locations now? It used to be El Dorado. Is it, is it Cameco now? The main two are Cameco and Orano, which is formerly Arriva, which was formerly something else. They keep changing <laughs> the name. But um, those are the two big ones. Cameco being the largest one, I think it's the second largest um, uranium mining company on the on the on Earth. Yeah, and I was looking at um, when I was looking at Google Maps, I was looking at Cigar Lake and some of the operations around there, and they look um, they look highly technical. So is are, is the mining no longer open pit or is it still open pit? It's just less visible from a satellite and then they're trucking it to these mills. How, how does the, how does the industry operate no, now? I think the last open pit mine, I believe was the Key Lake mine, Key okay. Lake and Clough Lake mines. Clough Lake has been closed and so-called decommissioned. Um, Key Lake is still operating as a mill, but not as a mine. And they've turned the pit into the tailings mm. pit. Um, there was a proposal being put forth by another company to do an open pit mine by diking up a lake. Uh, and um, we fought that really hard and turned opinion against it because it would have really destroyed that lake. And it was really 
kind of a hazardous method because they were in a dike around, like put a horseshoe shaped dike, mm -hmm. drain that part and then open pit mine there. Mm. And, under, uh, the, under where the lake originally had been. Right. Because the, the ore bed is only about 50 meters below that. Mm. But uh, they've changed their mind on that. And so basically all mines right now are um, underground mines, which, you know, there are, you know, like you mentioned earlier in, in our conversation, by looking at the map, you could see that, you know, we got so many lakes in northern Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And we have like the Cigar Lake and MacArthur Lake mine, there's issues with water getting into them. Right. And so what they've done is, is applied a freeze wall technology to around, around their digs so that water doesn't seep in. So they've put tubes and they run um, coolant to freeze the rock and freeze any water coming through. So, wow. yeah, so it is very technical and they're planning to do that in, in a couple of the other proposed mines too. Now there's another proposed in situ mine that's being proposed. It's going through an environmental impact assessment as we speak, where they intend to use that kind of technology to hold back groundwater from getting into the in-situ leach area that they plan to mine. But what we don't know is what they're going to do once they shut down. They, they'd have to either maintain that freeze wall permanently or what are they going to do? And they haven't really given us a sufficient answer. Right, because but, as soon as water can get in, then water can get moves. out and water right. moves. Yeah. Right. Who works at these mines? I mean, they look like fairly technical, big operations. They are. Um, the mills are, are probably a bit more technical than the, the mine itself. Hmm. But then again, they're starting to have such high-grade ore that they're starting to use more robotics. So because um, it's so radioactive. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes. So um, who works there are like they do employ a lot of our northern people. Um, there's when all the mines were running, there was probably about fifteen hundred. Um, employees from the north and they only made up about 45% of the workforce and the rest were from the south and I would say most of the, you know they did everything from working in the mill which is the really most dangerous place to work and um, working in underground they worked all manner of jobs. They, you know, there's caterers, there's a lot of side spin, there's a lot of spin off um, businesses that were established in the north with the mining. Mm. So um, there's caterers, there's janitorial services, you know, there's transportation services and stuff like that. So mm. they, 
primarily the northern people don't work the high tech tech jobs okay they work the dirty jobs mm. yeah and so so being in uh, in education you you must see you know the students um like you were saying the the kind of the traditional ways and and living off the land has been pretty much decimated and replaced with this industrial lifestyle. Yeah. I, I mean, people still do use the land, but it's becoming more and more difficult um, just because there's less and less animals to, and less time to develop the skills to do it properly. It has become, you know, within our education system, chemical for one has had a lot of influence on the, curriculum over the years they they have had a you know push in the sciences towards and and in post-secondary education and the technical schools it's all geared towards mining so you know there's less options other than mining in mm -hmm. a lot of the northern technical um post-secondary programs some, in some circles, that might be called brainwashing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How young yeah. does it start? How young do you start to see that kind of push for in science? curriculum, grade four. Wow. In social studies and science, yes. In math oh. as well. And, you know, like even, even the way that math was um, divided up about 10 years ago was that... Um, there would be two, two or three streams. One stream was for people who would be laborers for yeah. the mine. Yeah. The other streams were a little bit more advanced. So, huh. you know, people, you know, being kids, kids being kids, well, I'm going to take the easy one. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I only need the easy one to graduate. You know, the schools get a lot of donations from, from chemical and orano. Mm. And uh, there's scholarships through those through those uh, organizations as well. And when you're a, a young person, you know you 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 want to be able to have a job. There's not a yeah. whole lot of other kinds of jobs. We haven't when they first introduced the uranium mining again, like after the Cold War in the 70s and 80s, they promised prosperity for the North. And we didn't really get prosperity. We didn't get a full economy. We didn't get a diverse economy from it. We got a mining economy from it. That's all we got. So we're subject to the boom and bust of this industry. Right. So when Fukushima happened and the nuclear waste thing was going on in Saskatchewan, um, there was a bit of a bust. And right. a lot of miners got laid off. So, you know, there was no other jobs to go to. Some of them have had to leave the province to continue to be miners elsewhere in other types of mines. But, you know, hmm. there, there really isn't anything else. It hasn't transitioned into another kind of economy.
Right, right, and, and, it, and it's hard to it's hard to re to recreate or or retain or or get back those traditional ways when those need to be so connected to the land and the land is is poisoned. Right, right, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and it's all of these mines and all of this exploration is all on Dene territory. Yeah, and it is like I, I mentioned to you. There's over 3,000 mineral claims on our traditional lands. So, Candice, walk me through the, pro the process when you've got mineral claims by these prospecting companies. And it's usually, it's sometimes just one person, right, is a prospector or, or a small prospecting company. Then what happens? How do they, how do they get permission to go on the traditional territory? Are, is the, are the Indian Act Band Councils involved? Are there traditional councils at all? How it works is they file a claim online to the government of Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And when they intend to do any exploration on the site, they apply to the government for a permit to do so. Government pretty much rubber stamps it, sends a letter to stakeholders, which can be um, trappers associations, First Nations, bands, Métis Nation, um, Métis locals, outfitters and they send a, a form letter out that says this this is what they're going to do they may you know they're going to be putting in a line cut doing this doing that and uh you have 30 days to respond it also always says that it will have low impact on your traditional treaty rights and unfortunately unless you have the land you do not have treaty right you don't the rights are useless mm. and 30 days by the time it comes up through the mail and they get a hold of you know people in the trappers you know group or the local metis local you've already lost a week to two weeks and they want all of the responses in technical language, science-based. <laughs> so traditional knowledge is negated pretty much, although, you know, they give lip service to it. Um, a lot of so land users have gone out to their land to do, you know, their trap, their trap line and have found the traps moved, plowed out. They find gates. They have had helicopters follow them to their trap line and surveil them while they are, you know, doing their thing. And the animals are impacted by that noise. It's It's been very upsetting for a lot of the traditional land users. It's, um, it's infringing. And then with once these new roads are in, yeah. there's an increase in out of region hunters like hunters from the south and there seems to be um i had met one young person he came he was the son of a friend of ours and he said i've got a moose ticket 
and, and I'm told I can only hunt north of the Beaver River. Well, that's all in our territory. So, you know, like I said, quite frankly, there's more moose down south because the moose have migrated. Moose have, a lot of the moose have left the region. And, and um, we're not seeing as many like as we used to in the past. It's in the last two decades, it's just gone way down. And do you think they're leaving? Do you think the moose are migrating south because of the the industrialization of of the of your territory? Yeah, if you you know you said you were looking at the Google Maps. When you look at the Google Maps in some of these more remote regions where there's not so many communities, you'll see roads everywhere. There's there's yeah. roads all over the place. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, people are people who have cabins, their trappers cabins, their hunting cabins up in the region are finding like there's cabins popping up all around them that aren't from our people. So the yeah. government is giving away the land up there on us without consultation. When a claim um, finds, let's say, a rich deposit, say, you know, the next Cigar Lake, um, and they want to go ahead and start and start kind of one of these underground mines and a mill, um, either at the same location or nearby, what, what happens then? They go through a long process of, um, it. that triggers duty to consult, and they need to consult with the traditional First Nations, Métis, all those stakeholders of the land. And, but that consultation is, is kind of a farce. It's, it's like they come in and say, this is our proposal. This is what we're going to do. What do you need? Is essentially mm. what they're saying. What do you need to let us do it? So what's the smallest amount we can give you for you to use, lose your access to your land. And with uranium mining, that's pretty much going to be, you know, very, very long-term effect on that land. It'll never be what it was. And Once, what are some of the deals that are made? Like what kind of things, like, is it money or is it promises? Money and or? contracts. So they, first of all, they come in and do corporate social responsibility. They donate this. Like, I went to one meeting in one small community. I was invited to, to help them interpret um, what these guys are saying in their technical jargon, right? Mm. And uh, one of the first things they said at the meeting was, Oh, we see you have a basketball court outside. We could give your kids basketballs. <laughs> in return in for a million-year legacy of radioactive waste. <laughs> they've been in the region already doing their exploration, doing their drilling, test drilling for two years before they went to that community to consult. And that's what they said to them. Wow. We, can give, we can give summer student jobs. But you have to, you you have to, they have to compete with the, the community down the road. It, you know, it's just so arrogant and that's the preliminary, you know, foot in the door stuff. And okay. what they're wanting to hear from that is how many people want jobs. As soon as they hear that, 
that's the hook. And they use that hook to say, well, your people would get lots more jobs. You know, there'd be some economic opportunity. And then they start to do behind the closed doors meetings with um, band councils. And they come up with confidentiality agreements because that's how businesses operate because you don't want your competitors to know what you're offering. So there's confidentiality agreements and then it doesn't really go back to the people until an agreement is actually made. So about 10 years, uh, just about 10 years ago, there was the first collaboration agreements were signed in our region. And I know the first one was with a, a Métis community nearby and within that agreement, there was a gag order on the whole community. They wanted a gag order on the whole community. That's illegal. Yeah. That was actually exposed on CBC as it happens. And the vice, um, what's, what's the name? Vice CEO of uh, Indigenous Relations for Chemical was caught lying on as it happens. <laughs> And uh, so they quickly stopped that agreement temporarily and withdrew those clauses. Then within, and our band, I was told, I got a phone call from an elder who was part of the consultations. He uh, was very concerned because their lawyers told them to stop the process right now because mm -hmm. they were supposed to sign an agreement shortly as well. And what they did was withdraw those same clauses. And, um, but five months later, they signed an agreement and they announced the agreement a week before the signing. And at that point, that was the first time most of the members of the band heard about any agreement. <gasps> and at that point, it was basically a done deal. They were going, they said, we're going to be signing it next week. There was a lot of people that were very, very um, upset because within that agreement, Cameco had demanded that we drop a land claim on the area that they were proposing to mine. And uh, the band agreed to do that. And people wanted to know why on earth would you do that? Because, you know, even if you do like mining and you have a land that land is yours through that land claim. All of the mineral resources belong to you. But if you drop the land claim, you're just a tradition, it's just your traditional lands for using on the surface. Yeah. According to the government. And yeah. all of that would be accessible and belong to whoever the government gave permission to do. There was a lot of questions regarding that and there wasn't any satisfactory answers and however it was a big big deal and we're in an economically deprived region our band had in the past in the 1990s bought a company that a construction company that dealt with mines so it's linked to mining and it was always linked to the uranium mines in Saskatchewan. They bought it from somebody else. 
Right. And so they've been involved with the uranium mining for some time. Yeah. But so they're a subcontractor to the to chemical and Arano. Right. As a subcontractor, as a business, they wanted that deal. The deal was mm -hmm. for $604 million over 10 years, primarily in contracts to service the mine. It's like pimping. <laughs> and wow. there would be some community monies, a community trust fund, which would be based on um, the profits of the company. Cameco knew full well they were going into a slump. Yeah. Within six months of signing the agreement, they shelved the project that the contracts would have been for. So essentially, our band has maybe made 15 million out of 604 million. Oh. Um, and I, I mean, that's a guess because we haven't really made very much. And the last announcement I heard on funds was like two years ago. Before I let you go, you were saying that you keep a hotline um, yes. and that sometimes disgruntled, you know, chemical um, workers will call your hotline and tell you about some of the more shadier things that are going on up there. What are some of the things that you've learned? Um, within the milling um, complex, they have um, lots of in the process. They have a lot of filters and stuff. One thing that was alarming was they have these safety bells that go off when the filters fall but numerous numerous times quite it's common practice to just push a button and bypass the alarm and continue working because they don't want to slow down the process Ooh. so you know when those things are full that stuff is getting out in you know it's being bypassed and it's getting out into the environment that was alarming the effluent that goes into the water the whole concept uh, there's groundwater uh that's been contaminated because they didn't use a high enough quality floor so the radioactive material and the acid that they used to break down the um the the orange yellow cake and stuff went through the floor and there's, there's all this uranium contamination in the groundwater now and they're saying it's moving very slowly, like 15 meters a year. Well, that's not slow in our terms. By their terms, it's not going to get to a lake before they're done and they're gone. But for our life, that's important. And we haven't had a, a, a response back on how they're going to deal with that. And that's been over two years. And it took them like almost six over six months to report to us that they had had that spill and and you're hearing and some of this information knew. you're hearing some of this information through your hotline so workers yeah. will call your hotline yes what else have you learned through your hotline uh that's back in 1980 in the 1980s there was a yellow cake uh truck that was uh going through the united states in South Dakota and it hit a train and the uh, all of the soil from a, a mile around that train all of the track all of the cars 
were scooped up and brought and dumped in our tailings pit in at Key Lake. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. And nobody, nobody here knew that. That was not on the news. That was never public knowledge. Have you heard of other waste being trucked north? Yes. I've been told through the hotline that there's there's material being sent from Blind River. We don't know what it is, but it's being dumped in the tailings as well. Oh, my goodness. How do we go about, we're going to stay in touch. I mean, how do we go about, like, a hotline is one thing, but people aren't going to leave their names. But if they're telling, if they're telling your hotline this, then it needs to be investigated. Yes. We did find, uh, so like we did an investigation on that train incident. Mm -hmm. There was nothing in the AECL. AECL was the name of the uh, regulator before the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. Yeah. So back at that time, it was AECL. There, there's no information back in those back records about that train stop. Yet, we found a news article out of South Dakota that mentioned it completely. Wow. And, and this business of, um, of, of radioactive waste being shipped from Blind River up to and just being dumped in your tailings lakes up there. Um, how long ago did you receive that hotline call? About a year ago. Yeah. Wow. So it's okay. been going on for a while. Like, there, you know, there's been people who are very concerned about stuff that's been taken up to Rabbit Lake and Key Lake. Um, from other places. It's being brought in on trucks. It's being brought in on military transport planes. You know, and we don't know what it is. And I actually got notification that there was a military transport plane that landed at two of the mine sites. And they were escorted by F-18s. And I tried to get information. I, our MP and our MLA tried to get information and it was all classified. Candace, how does this all affect the communities in terms of, you know, just um, community health, mental health, to have the environment being so degraded um, from the uranium industry, but to be, be embedded, so embedded in such a part of the uranium industry? I'm sure it's got a lot to do with, um, you know, the legacy of colonialism and racism and, and the, you know, the terror of the residential school system, that genocide. Um, what is, just to wrap up, like, like you've been a part of so many amazing groups and initiatives over the years trying to fight this. What is best case scenario for the future for this entire region? Our best case scenario would be get out of the industrialization of our region and take over, uh, like self-empower ourselves to have a more diverse, sustainable economy. A mining economy is never going to be a sustainable economy. When once it leaves and once you're hooked onto the money and the credit system that it brings, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's just gonna drop people. So we need to get our people 
into other things. We have to develop more education and more careers in other things, develop a professional field so that we're not being told by carpetbaggers from big corporations what's good for us. Our people have suffered over the last couple of decades of being involved in the mining industry. We have gone from a very healthy, um, physically fit, um, very, very healthy people with the best foods in the world to people with high cancer rates, high diabetes, high, you know, lots of chronic health conditions. 30% of our people have chronic health conditions. People are getting cancers at younger and younger ages. And it's, it's having an impact and people, our people are beginning to see that, that their, their idea of being involved with the mining companies has begun to change. It's no longer just about having money to spend. Right. And, and those kinds of opportunities that the money had and living through COVID, (laughs) there's no place to spend the money anyway. (laughs) So you see some, you see some real hope in the younger generations that their eyes are open to what's really going on. eh? I do. I, I was, pleasantly surprised with this last environmental impact study um, um, consultation that so many people are fed up with the whole idea of just, you know, you come in, you leave your footprint here and you walk away. Mm-hmm. We don't want your footprint anymore is basically what many of them were saying. Mm-hmm. And these are people, some, some of these people were formerly minors. just to try to leave off on a good note here, because this has been kind of mind boggling. Um, Of the different groups that you are part of, the Interchurch Uranium Committee Education, um, the Outreach Coordinator for the Committee for Future Generations, um, the Keepers of the Water, you're part of a lot of these different groups and, um, and, and thank you for that work. And of those groups, um, would you say that they're all valuable for different reasons or that they're all working together or that where do people support, where do people go to support your work the, the, the most effectively? Um, Interchurch Uranium Committee right now uh, is, is the one where, you know, they, they do a lot to, and they're, and they are one of the oldest organizations against uranium mining. Um, in the province so they're the ones that um and they just revamped their website so it should be pretty good to access all the information that you possibly can our website unfortunately has had to take a little bit of a back seat because i've been too busy with other things to maintain it um Mm -hmm. is that the committee for future generations right but there is a lot of information in there on how we've done our fight and how we were successful in in um, getting nuclear waste management organization out of the province. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That part, um, we're just new to Keepers of the Water and um, they've been primarily a um, out of Northern Alberta. 
they print primarily a coal and oil sands um, NGO, I guess. I don't know whether NGO is the right word, but organization to, yeah. to fight against those things. Yeah. But they invited us because they know that the uranium industry is, is a big problem on the water as well. Yeah. And through their organization, we're going to be accessing ability to do community monitoring of water. Well, thank you so, so much, Candace. This has been really enlightening about your part of the world. Yeah, there's so much more to it yet. I know, we could probably go on for a <laughs> hour. for like 15 <laughs> podcasts on it. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do another one. And please sure. reach out to me if anything big happens, if you need more support around a particular issue, and especially if you get any success stories as well. All right, I will do so. Okay, thank you, Candace. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. -bye. Bye.